Welcome to the Fearless Women Podcast. We're inspiring conversations for the unafraid. I'm Janice McDonald, founder of The Beacon Agency, author, and global champion for women. Why am I making this show? Because I want to share the inspiring stories of women leaders in business, arts and culture, politics, and more with all of you. Hear how they've chosen to go forward and be bold and make the world a better place, even when it wasn't easy to do. Subscribe now wherever you find podcasts. I'm Janice McDonald. Welcome to the Fearless Women podcast. Today, I'm excited to welcome Nicole Verkint. She's the founder and CEO of the Canadian technology company OMX. She's also a commentator on CBC and a dragon on CBC's Next Gen Dragon's Den, which is dedicated to early stage tech businesses. Welcome, Nicole. Hi, Janice. Thanks. It's great to be here. And welcome to our listeners from around the world, including USA, UK, Ireland, New Zealand, and so many more countries. We want our community to grow. So please tell your friends and follow us on Instagram. Thanks also to our amazing sponsors, 30% Club Canada, ADGA, and BDC. So, Nicole, let's talk about OMX. You are doing amazing things with this company that you founded and you run. It's the world's most powerful procurement database and platform. You connect buyers and sellers in the global supply chain to access the best and most relevant opportunities. So tell us more about it. How did it start? And I know you also have uh, uh, your latest announcement partnership. So give us the scoop. Sure. Where do I start? Um so it started out as a very sort of modest concept. I was trying to solve my own problem. My first startup was in the manufacturing sector. We sold to governments around the world. Uh, and then I also joined a family business that was in a similar type space. And when I started OMX, it was, I was not a technologist by any, by any stretch of the imagination. I was, I'm not an engineer. I didn't, I didn't even go through the STEM programs. But I was really trying to solve my own problem, which was this myriad of procurement opportunities that were all over the place and especially in the b2b space it's it's kind of been an old boys network where you have to know the procurement person you have to be taking them out for lunch for months um and there's they weren't really leveraging the internet in some of these sort of i call them industrial markets so um, when we got started, we were really focusing in really industrial manufacturing, um, a lot of work in the defense and aerospace industry. Uh, we've since expanded to very similar industries um, where we work in mining, energy, infrastructure, um, general manufacturing, et cetera. Um, but it's really around a few areas. So I'm glad that you called us the most powerful procurement platform, but really what we call ourselves is the most powerful procurement platform that drives socioeconomic returns. So what I mean by that is we play in this space where government or corporations have incentives to source locally, to source from small businesses, women-owned businesses, Aboriginal-owned businesses, um, small business, I think I said that. But any of these sort of set-asides, these diversity requirements, minority-owned was one of them. Um, and you see that in the sectors that I indicated. So you're seeing that in the infrastructure sector now. They're saying it must have community benefits associated with your infrastructure projects. Um, and we're seeing it demanded at a much wider level where investors today are creating funds or they have funds that have something called an ESG requirement, environmental social governance. And under the G, under the governance, there's an element for what does your corporation do internally around incentivizing a myriad of suppliers that have diversity and 
that are driving long-term social and economic benefits. So our platform is really a supplier data management platform. We're kind of like a CRM for supply chain. Um, and we also measure, track, and report on the actual socioeconomic impacts. So we use uh, economic modeling and we're literally stealing concepts from a whole bunch of other technologies and platforms that exist and bringing mm-hmm. it all under this one umbrella around solving this problem of sourcing and creating reporting and, um, and measurements of supply chains. So it's kind of a, I like to say, a bit of unsexy industry. There wasn't a ton of innovation happening in it when we entered into it. Um, it's not, you know, consumer focused, et cetera. And um, the announcement that we just made, which I'm pretty mm-hmm. excited about, is we've partnered up with a Canadian tech company that is specialized in blockchain. And we're looking at applying blockchain to tracking and tracing suppliers around the world and essentially having a single ledger system to uh, keep track of your local sourcing and elements of reporting and even reporting into governments. So there's a bunch of areas in our platform already where we're just inserting some of this blockchain technology, which is pretty exciting because I think it's, I really do think it's the future. I think we've had a lot of conversations around blockchain and the minute we talk about blockchain, everyone's minds go straight to Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. But the technology itself, I believe there's a huge future for it in so many other areas around um, the ability to create records that are not deleted um, and many, many others. So we're applying it to supply chain, which we think is a pretty wide application. And uh, yeah, we just keep, we keep iterating and we keep um, bringing on new things that our customers are begging for. So it's not good enough for them to ask, but if they ask a few times and then they get on their knees and start paying, <laughs> then, then we, uh, we, will, we will iterate alongside them, which is an interesting sort of way for us to grow. So uh, just to uh, make a, a frank statement here, you may not have started off as a technologist, but boy, you, you, you speak tech now, my dear friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, through osmosis. Yeah. Can you share some insights into uh, your leadership style and how it's evolved as your company has grown? Because your company is really growing in leaps and bounds and it's uh, an exciting time. Yeah, it's funny because I don't think I've ever had a leadership style. I've never read a leadership book. I've never been involved in motivational leadership um, training, anything like that. So if I have one, I don't know what it is. Um, I'm definitely not a manager. I can tell you that I've never been one. I never will be one. Um, I've never been able to sit team members down and you know ask them what they're doing that day and if they're following up on the list we talked about a week before. So um, I would say that from the very beginning and with everything I've ever done, I had to start it before this one. I've always been very enthusiastic and I've always been um, – excited about getting something going. I'm definitely the person that gets an airplane off the ground. Um, I don't think that's ever changed. I don't think I can change myself. Of course, we evolve, we learn, we know how to, I mean, there's a great book out there, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Um, As your company grows and changes, you have new hard things and that's okay. It's just, there's new problems. In the beginning, it might be getting your first customer and then it might be figuring out some internal systems so that, um, you can scale and they can automatically get paid and that sort of thing. But I would say that my leadership style hasn't changed. Of course, I've learned a lot. Um, One thing that sometimes upsets me is I feel, I don't like Groundhog Day. You know, once I've seen (laughs) something and I know it doesn't work, I don't like to go there again. And sometimes that that can be a limiting thing for me because 
people will come up with new ideas and I, I try to make sure I hear everything, but I'll hear stuff and go, yeah, yeah we tried that two years ago. So we're not trying that again, right. but I try to not, I try to avoid that. Um, so I don't think I have a leadership style. I would say that I'm, I've always been very enthusiastic. I've always been, um, a get things done person. And I, I have never been able to have people on our team that just sit around and strategize all day long. Of course, there's a time and place for strategy, but um, I love being around people where everybody takes actions and goes and, and does them. And it's just, it's great to be around people like that. Well, it sounds like the people working with you uh, get their stuff done so that you don't have to be managing them. Absolutely. I, I really do believe in bringing a group of entrepreneurs together and then together you're accomplishing a task as opposed to there being one leader, one entrepreneur that manages this group of people that are not entrepreneurs and they don't see it. You know, to me, if somebody has the instincts and they join the team and you just let them go mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's the only way I've been able to do it. So fearless is being unafraid or at least being bold. What's the last thing that you've done, Nicole, that's really scared you? Like, when have you kind of stepped out <laughs> and, and gone for it? I mean, I know you do all the time, but give us a, an example. Well, you know, just yesterday I was walking into a pitch and, um, you know, one of my team members, I told them, you've got this. You're going to stand up and say a big part of it. And she looked at me and she said, I'm scared. I said, yeah, I kind of am too. This was a really big pitch. I hope we win. You know, good luck. But I, I also said that it's if you're not kind of feeling that little bit every day with little things that you're doing, then I think, I think that's a sign. (laughs) So, I mean, I would, to answer your question directly, I was scared yesterday a little bit. Um, but you know, you just (laughs) remind yourself to keep talking and keep moving. And, um, it's funny because it, as soon as you do that thing, when you pitch that big client, you stand up, then you, for me, you've broken the box, Mm -hmm. right? So now your box is bigger and then you get up the next time you go, I've already been here. And so it doesn't matter. I remember the first time I did TV, probably five years ago, I was shaking like a leaf and, you know, now I can go on with no notice and no prep. Hopefully my hair has been done that day. (laughs) Usually it's not, um, you know, I can, I can get the call at 10 and show up at one and I don't feel fear anymore because the the box has been broken. So when I think about fear, and now I can't believe this. I'm going to quote Howard Hughes. But <laughs> Howard Hughes actually said, and he, he was a showman for anybody who knows who he is. He said, it's not about these great giant feats of fl- in flight, right? He was an airplane guy. He said, it's about everyday service of getting up every day and pushing envelopes a little bit. And that's what I believe. I believe it's that next meeting. It's the next speech. It's the next um, whatever. So um the way I think about fear is sort of these small new things that you just keep breaking. And then you wake up and you realize that last thing isn't scary anymore, but you have another thing in front of you anyway. So yeah. <laughs> you don't have a little time to think about it. You got to go for the next thing. So yeah. um, Nicole, what was the 10 year old you like? Where, where'd you live? how did you spend your time? What were you in, interested <laughs> in? Oh, wow. Um, I grew up in a small town, an hour Northwest of Toronto uh, my parents were entrepreneurs. They they were running a manufacturing business. When I was 10, I was a total, total tomboy. I remember playing around on tractors all day long in the mud. My parents were like hands-off parents. They would be at work all day and, um, you know, come home late and that kind of stuff. And uh, my parents had some, some rough years when I was around that age. I remember that we were, we were building a house and something had happened with the business and when I was about 10, they 
had to move into a trailer and we moved, lived in a trailer for four years on the property that we were building this house. And I never cared because I, I don't remember ever being upset about it, but I was a complete and utter tomboy. And, you know, I was playing around with, with horses and spending my days, you know, doing things with them. Um, I don't know. I would, I would get on a horse with no saddle and go camping for two days. And um, I don't even know how I told my parents and they had left, left it on a sticky note that I'd be back. Um, so I was, a, I was a tomboy. And you mentioned horses. You love horses. Tell us about this obsession. <laughs> well, I don't think you want to spend a whole hour talking about that. but um, Maybe a little bit of yeah, time. <laughs> I, I took 10 years off of it. And it's so funny because you know, extreme personality. I, um, I literally went up with a friend and I, I should go back and shoot this friend now, but about five years ago, I went up with a friend and I had, I had taken 10 years off. So, um, it was about 15 years ago. Oh no, it was more. It was 20. I was 16 when I really quit and I was really into it for a long time. Um, but anyways, I went up with a friend and I was just going to ride a horse once. And then the next week I was buying all the stuff again. The week <laughs> after that, I was partly seeing a horse. Like two weeks after that, I was buying one and, and then this thing just escalated, um, to no end. So I love it. It's so much fun. Um, I love spending as many, definitely every weekend, but as many days as possible. And you can be out in the woods. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Tell us about that. Mm -hmm. Um, well, it's funny because I had a crash on Sunday and Uh I don't have the same, the same body that I have. 20 years ago when I was 15 because uh, I was in a lot of pain, whiplash and everything, but it's exhilarating. It's exciting. Um, It's a true partnership that you have to figure out. It's not, um, it's not like just learning to run faster. It's, there's so many details and it's so complex and there's a little bit of magic there and there's a lot of psychology. So I've actually been going and taking master's classes online around sports psychology um, because there's just, it's such a head game. It's kind of like a mixture of golf and some other extreme sport where you could hurt yourself really badly um, because it's so much of it's a mind game. You know, I'm very impatient. It's my biggest weakness. If I ever had an interview in my life and they said, what's your weakness? It would always be, I'm, I'm impatient. It's kind of one of those secrets. It's kind of a strength too, right? To get things done. But yes. I'm impatient as all hell. And um, if anyone's seen that bad side of me, it's because I get very impatient with things. Well, you're galloping a horse up to a four foot jump and you get impatient for half a second, you're on your face. So you have to learn little things like that that are a bit of a mind game that take a lot of uh, strength in your own, in your own um, personality, which is, which is a challenge. But, you know, whenever I, when I had my crash, I thought, Oh God, I can't do this anymore. It's too dangerous, too crazy. And I ended up just taking it easy for a day on, on the horse, of course. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, you know, went back in the woods and was kind of back to the way I used to be when I was a kid. And I thought anyone who's spending their Saturday in a shopping mall on the day like today, and I'm out in the woods, you know, galloping at top speed, <laughs> I just feel, you know, I just, to me, that's not my, that's not my thing being in a mall. And how did you figure out which courses to take in this uh, for sports psychology? Like what, is there a site you recommend or, you know, for somebody who's thinking, yeah, I want to do that too. So there is an equestrian site called noellefloyd.com and she has masterclasses in there. And there's one that's led by a woman who's a PhD and she's a a mental coach. And um, I never would have thought I would need a mental coach for my hobby. But when (laughs) I took the masterclass, I thought this applies to everything. It's all about what you tell yourself. It's all about your self-perception. It's all about, 
you know, why you're actually in it. Are you in it to prove something? Or are you in it because you realize that every failure you had have is just feedback that's getting you closer and closer to something else. And that's all part of the sports psychology is you have to be in it for those reasons. And it completely translates over to everything else, which I think is really fascinating. And your doggy, you have him at work. How does this influence the work culture? My hundred pound animal. Um, honestly, I, people love dogs. So if there's anyone, everyone in my office does. So I'm lucky in that sense. And, um, it's great. I mean, I mean, I think our office in particular sort of feels like a family and, you know, I run out the door and say, can somebody walk him? I won't be back for three hours. And they, they, people do. And, um, yeah, I think, and that's happening in a lot of companies now. It's not unusual to see a dog at the office or to see that type of vibe. And to me, that just feels more like a solid sort of real team as opposed to just, I don't know, being so formal all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it um, I think it, it lowers the stress level. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. when everyone's having a bad day, it's like, yeah. look at the doggy. <laughs> There'll always be some comedic relief, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about mentorship. So you've been the lucky beneficiary of amazing women leaders in your life, including Angela Mondu, and she's an upcoming guest on the show as well. So, um, you know, why is mentorship so important? Have you had other mentors? And uh, also, do you mentor? First of all, I'll say I believe that people, women, young women, any women, should see other women in the types of roles that they aspire to. And so the more we have women in those types of roles, then the more you can actually visualize and see yourself in that role. So, for example, I was in high school when I met Angela Mondu, and maybe a lot of people I was hanging around with or talking to, women, they had aspirations to go to college and have kids right away and do different things. And I met Angela and she's 20 years older than me. And she, you know, served in Bosnia. She went and worked at Nortel, ran M&A at one point, you know, joined RIM at the ground up, grew RIM, got the Black Bear and the Oprah show, did all these crazy things, wrote a book. I helped her with her book tour when I was in my early, early twenties. Um, and so I watched her doing these things as, frankly, a teenager, 20, 20 year old. And I thought, whoa, I could do that. I don't have to just follow the straight path. And so I think the first thing is just seeing somebody in that role. And from there, I took it up. I really took it upon myself to read any biography of a woman I looked up to, to really see what their story was. And if it was something that could be achievable and, you know, meet any other women that I tried to, I don't know, want to be like, and I don't think I ever had a formal mentorship role with any of those women. So I, I think that's an important piece is mm-hmm. that you can learn a lot. You can inspire yourself. You don't have to ask another woman to do the work for you and to meet with you every quarter and, and teach you and coach you and mentor you. I think you can learn a lot from women and other people and lots of men too, by reading about them and um, just sort of being around them. Yeah, absolutely. The second thing I'll say the second thing I'll say is I actually don't think mentorship is important. I think that um, it's more around sponsorship, mm-hmm. that it's more important to have people that are there cheering you on and that too often women will ask other people and often women, which is sometimes a mistake, to mentor them and to say, you know, and their idea of mentorship is can we meet once a month and you tell me what I should be doing and essentially we chit chat and we do what women do really well, which is talk. But 
what men often do is this is this is complete you know it's not all men it's not all women but by and wide men will meet with some other usually men other men maybe they go for a beer maybe they i don't know how they do it and they say hey can you recommend me for that job or uh can i get in on that deal that you're working on they don't realize that it's going to label to it but that's sponsorship that's actually asking for something and so i think more women need to think a lot more about sponsorship and meeting up with different people, men and women. You know, I've, I've received a lot more sponsorship in my life, help, actual help from men than I have from women. So I think that all women should be meeting with men and women. And of course they should be asking for some, some help and some advice and which is, I guess would be labeled mentorship, but more often they should be meeting with them to sell themselves, to make the case for themselves and to just, suck it up and ask, ask for the promotion, ask for the capital, ask for the sale, um, and just ask for it. So to me, that feels like that's still the gap, right? Cause I mean, you went there, Janice, you're, you're, you are an expert in women entrepreneurship and you've interviewed women all across this country yeah. and you went first to mentorship. Yeah. And I, I think we should stop talking about mentorship and we should move that next step and say, how do we get women what they need? Absolutely. And and, um, I was involved in starting a program with women in communications and technology called the Protégé Project. And the whole goal of that project is for emerging women leaders who are aspiring to C-suite positions to be matched up with people that ideally become their champions and recognizing that... um, you know, the, to have a champion in your corner or many, as you've indicated, you know, could be so powerful because, yes, they uh, put their kind of full weight of their reputation behind you and, and open up those opportunities. So it's it's vitally important. Agree. Fantastic. And, and the other the other absolute truth is some of the people that you need the most to be your sponsors or mentors, they don't have a lot of spare time. So the person that will promote you, I, you know, I can't say the person's name, but there is somebody who I was seeking, you know, to get together for coffee or to meet with. And he had zero time. He's just way too busy. I tried to get his assistant. We get 15 minutes and we get pushed by a month. Yeah. Zero. So I just sent him a few things about myself. And then finally I said to him one day, you know, I'm looking for help on this. And what did he do? He quickly did an email intro and that's all I got. And you know what? It made a huge impact in my life. So right. You see a lot of young people too, and they convert to, well, I need an hour of your time every month so I can tell you my problem. But there's not, the people that you really need help from are not going to have that kind of time. And so I think we need to get creative around um, people's expectations for these formal mentorship relationships. So you're also on uh, an advisory board. You're doing so many interesting things, but this one with um, Goldie Hyder and the uh, CEO council. So what's your role and why is it important that you're there and that your voice is heard? Yeah, I mean, this is the thing I'm most excited about of 2019. It's been so incredible to date, and there's a lot more to come. Um, this is the so the Business Council of Canada is a council of the CEOs of the, t- the biggest companies in Canada, and there's about 20 of us. Uh, so there's maybe 100 or so members of the huge companies, you know, Loblaws and Suncor, all those big companies. And then there's about 20 of us that are labeled next-gen leaders, um, and we are leading smaller, innovative tech companies. Um Goldie, when he came on as the new CEO, he launched something called Canada's Task No, sorry, Task Force for Canada's Economic Future. And essentially, it's a task force 
um, it, it's made up of all the BCC members, so all of the CEOs of the biggest companies in Canada. And it's a task force to really drill into what areas are holding us back in this country that are holding us back from growth, and what do we recommend uh, government and businesses do to change to grow our country. And um, I am a co-chair of that. So I am chairing that with um, the CEO of Nutrien and the CEO of National Bank. And I think it's important that I am involved in chairing that task force because, well, a few reasons. One is that it's about all Canadians. This is not about what do the CEOs of the biggest companies in Canada want. This is about what does the whole country need to do so that it trickles down to you know women, to entrepreneurs, to people who run tech companies, to, to all Canadians. So that's kind of the first thing. And the second thing is we need all those perspectives and we really need to look at our innovation gaps as well. So um, it's been a really fascinating process, which has been entirely led by the team that works at BCC. Very, very, very smart individuals. Um, and they don't get a lot of uh, spotlight so much. But Goldie Hyder, of course, is CEO. And then there's Ross Laver and Cam uh, and others at the BCC that have been leading this whole process. Um, and so what the BCC normally does is they get together for these meetings where they hear tremendous speakers. You know, my first three years of meetings, I thought, how the heck did we get these speakers? Just incredible people all, from all over the world. We travel around the world. But at our last BCC meeting, we got every single member to roll up their sleeves and go into two days of sessions where we identified what the key problems were, came up with a bunch of recommendations. We had probably a hundred recommendations for government and businesses of what they could do to help Canada, help our economy. Um, and we tried to narrow it down to a small number and we're narrowing it down even further. Um, so we did all of that, which was fascinating because we turned the tables on the members and kind of made them work for a few days. It was great. And now we're in the process of going across Canada, engaging all sorts of stakeholders. And no, they are not CEOs of other companies. They are stakeholders from across the board. Um, so we just had the Toronto sessions a couple of days ago. And um, it was such a cross-section of people that we had um, there. So it's really meant to be a collaborative project. Um, it's really about the economy. There's no partisanship in it. But as we complete our report... We are going to be going to all three or four political parties, sharing it with them and encouraging them to include it in their platforms because it's literally just about the country. It's got nothing to do with any connection to any political party, but it's about our findings of what's holding us back. So isolating the problem and then what some of the solutions could be. That sounds very exciting. And I'd love to share some of that with you. Oh, yeah. It's really fascinating. And it's all rooted in data. If you look at some of the data, Canada has fallen dramatically in the last 10 years in terms of ease of doing business. We have added regulatory burden and levels of government to everything that we do so much that we can't get a building permit to build a basic building on a property for a business in less than two years. So, so I could travel to the moon and back, or I could travel to Mars one way, or I could get a basic building permit in Canada. In the same time, in the United States, it takes two weeks. So administrative burden, regulatory burden um, is literally is literally the root of so many of these problems that we are facing. And you look at um, where we've fallen in terms of ease of doing business and cost of doing business and um, foreign direct investment. So foreign direct investment, 
is dropping in Canada dramatically and quickly. Um, other investors around the world are looking at our country saying, well, they can't get a pipeline built. They can't get major infrastructure projects completed. You can't even get a building permit for a basic, basic, um, like a shed that you would put on your factory property. So um, regulatory burden, obviously the tax system, not necessarily incentivizing uh, capital investments and then innovation. We're just not embracing innovation um, Canadian companies are not embracing innovation. So you talk, I'm sure you've spoken to many uh, CEOs of Startup Canada and tech leaders that they have to sell to the United States. They have to raise capital from the United States. So there's some really interesting issues in there that I didn't realize they were as bad as they are until you look at the data and you realize, man, we live in the best country on earth. But if we don't have the economics to back it up, to pay for our amazing social programs and to pay for this incredible country that we have, then we're not going to have this amazing country anymore. So I would say our biggest strength in Canada is our diversity. And, you know, we're not as willing to take risks, which has helped us so much with our banking systems, et cetera. But it's also, I I would say our biggest weakness is that we're just a little bit too comfortable and we take for granted, you know, how great of a country we have. So it's been a really fascinating experience. I've been able to meet incredible people, just getting in there and understanding that data has been eye-opening to me. And when you look at how you solve it, it's not going to be solved by a hundred CEOs. It has to be solved by everybody. And um, there's some really good recommendations for government in Canada that are going to come out that we hope are actually achievable and can actually be fulfilled, you know, in a short period of time. Yeah. That's all I'll say for that. (laughs) Well, I hear your passion is very exciting to, to know that this important work is getting done. So it's wonderful that you're, uh, part of that, uh, leading part of that charge. So thank you for that. Uh, you're um, also, after two years, I passed along the torch uh, as Startup Canada's ambassador for women entrepreneurs. I delighted in that role. And now you're in that role. What's your vision for it? Yeah, I mean, it's so great to follow in your footsteps, Janice. I, my vision is really about getting into some of the specifics. And so the two things I keep hearing that women entrepreneurs need is capital and access to business opportunities. And so how do we get both of those things flowing um, and how do we measure that with data? So I'm, I would like, you know, you know, I'm working with, I guess there's a new CEO coming on board at Startup Canada. So I'm hoping to ramp up those activities here in the rest of the year. But to me, I would love to take a baseline, see if we can affect some changes and then try to measure some specifics around both of those items because um, there's obviously just so much to be done. But at this point, it's it's kind of like, how do we affect just those two very specific areas? Um, but it's, it's just so much harder than it sounds, as, as you know. <laughs> I do indeed. It's great, though, that you're going to be in this role and you're such an amazing role model for women entrepreneurs. So final question for you, Nicole. What's your dream for Canada? Oh, wow. Well, one small dream I have, which is kind of a narrow focus, is, you know, kind of bridging my world of innovation, entrepreneurship, women entrepreneurs, and this this world I came from, which is this very traditional industrial sector. My vision is that right now it feels like we have a great innovation economy and we have a lot of support for the startup community. And we have so many great entrepreneurs. They're often coming out of university and they've often got ideas right away, but they haven't worked in all of the industrial sectors yet. 
So I always make a joke that, you know, when we filmed, I did one season of Next Gen Dragon's Den, but there was so many startup ideas for how to improve dating, for instance. And because of course, you know, that people are right out of school and they're starting coming up with new business ideas. My vision for Canada is how do we bridge that enthusiasm, you know, these great minds that we have, especially coming out of university. We have a lot of immigrants coming to Canada for university and wanting to stay here after and work on innovative projects. How do we bridge all that energy and all that support for that community to the more industrial communities that, frankly, if we added innovation to, it would make us so much more competitive around the world. So, you know, you have a pipeline operating a bit in a silo um, out in Western Canada. How do we innovate in that sector? You know, instead of using helicopters for surveying, why are we not deploying all these brilliant minds and, and having these the latest drones and data and software to be able to do that work and make them that much more competitive. So my vision, and it's more of a short-term vision, is to try to figure out how we bridge two communities that I've seen as operating so separately to and for the, all the industrial sectors to see the tech community and see the startup community as not just a B2C thing, like, oh, that's so cute, they're trying to build the next Twitter, but seeing it as something that they could insert into their organizations to make themselves so much more competitive around the world. It's a practical dream for Canada. Thank you so much for sharing it, Nicole. It has been an absolute delight uh, to speak to you today. Nicole Verkint, she's the founder and CEO of OMX. She is a big business thinker, and it has been an absolute delight to speak with you today on the Fearless Women podcast. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. We want our community to grow. Tell your friends, follow us on Instagram, and sign up for our newsletter at fearlesswomenpodcast.com to get the early scoop. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite app. And if you like what you hear, give us a five-star rating. I'm Janice McDonald. Stay fearless. Thank you to the 30% Club Canada for your support of the Fearless Women podcast. The 30% Club believes that gender balance on boards and in senior management not only encourages better leadership and governance, but diversity further contributes to better all-around board performance and ultimately increased corporate performance for both companies and their shareholders. Want to learn more? Visit their website, 30percentclub.org, and select the Canada chapter to find out about membership, supporters, and key resources. Thank you to BDC, the bank devoted exclusively to entrepreneurs, for your support of the Fearless Women podcast. We love smart companies that want to amplify women's voices. For more information, go to bdc.ca women.